Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I hope you are ready for a seriously smart conversation. I'm Chris Demp. And I'm John Rojas. I and say I feel that, but... so inferior I know. to our guest. I was going to say, I say that because this one almost hurt my brain. But hey, we wouldn't be living up to our name if we didn't bring you conversations that expand your mind. And I thought this one was interesting because A, we haven't really covered it yet at all. Math. We yeah. haven't covered math. Math on the and show. computer science. I don't think we've really touched base on. Yeah. And so why not have one of the leading authorities in the world on the show? We speak with Lance Fortnow. And Lance, Lance knows a little bit about math and computer science. He is professor and chair of the School of Computer Science of the College of Computing at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He also holds an adjoint professorship at the Toyota Technological Institute at Chicago. He received his PhD in applied mathematics at MIT. Small school, you might have heard of it. You might have heard of it. And he has also served as the founding editor-in-chief of the ACM Transaction on Computation Theory, the chair of ACM SIGACT. And you know what? I, there's just a lot of stuff. There's just a lot. He's done a lot of really smart person things. So he's perfect for Smart People Podcast. But the reason we found him, he wrote a book called The Golden Ticket, PNP and the Search for the Impossible. 
And you're probably saying, what is that? PNP. What? So we're not even going to try to explain it. We'll let Lance try to explain it. And he actually takes about 10 minutes to explain it to us because Chris and I take a little bit of time to, didn't get, it. to get it. So anyways, we're going to turn it over to Lance. Thanks for listening, guys. Tell a friend. Put it on your social media. Say, hey, I listen to this awesome podcast on my way to work, at work, walking the dog, etc. Smartpeoplepodcast.com. Enjoy. All right, Lance, again, thank you so much for being on the show. I have to tell you, before we were, you know, as we were getting ready for this interview, we were looking at your book online on Amazon, right. and, and John started reviewing it. And after 20 minutes, he said, this is incredible. I have to buy this right now, and bought it and just started pouring through it because you have a very unique way of making the extremely complex remain complex, but understandable and tying it to everyday stories. So that was my goal. Yeah. And it's great. I actually wanted to, well, first let's talk about it. The book is the golden ticket PNP and the search for the impossible. Can you tell us what PNP means in terms that a non-mathematician will understand? The way I like to think about it, uh, an example I like to use is uh, take Facebook. So on Facebook, we have people we're friends with. Uh, and one question you might want to ask is, what's the largest uh, clique, sort of largest group of people, all of whom are friends with, with each other on, face, on Facebook? So, like, if you have five people, you're all friends with each other. Might be a natural question to ask is, you know, maybe what's the largest uh, such group? I have no idea. Maybe 100, maybe 200. I'm not sure. Certainly, we can't answer that question because we don't have access to Facebook's data. But you could imagine someone who has... Um, someone who works at Facebook who has access to all this data might try to figure out what's the largest group of people, all of whom are friends with each other. Just, you know, what's the largest click on, on Facebook? Now, how would that person go ahead with all this data trying to find this largest click? They could say, well, like maybe say, is there a, are there 100 people on Facebook, all of whom are friends with each other? They could write a program to try all groups, all possibilities of 100 people and then see if they're all friends with each other. So that would be a very kind of naive approach. Uh, that wouldn't work just because there's so many different combinations of people that even our fastest computers now or even forever in the future would never be able to search through all that many possibilities. And the question becomes is, is there some faster algorithm? Is there some clever way that we can find out what the largest group or whether there's 100 people who are all friends with each other, is there some faster way that we could figure that out. There's some efficient computational procedure, some algorithm or code people could write that could quickly figure out what this large group is. And the answer is, we don't know. And that turns out to be the essence of the P versus NP question. The P versus NP question asks you know, whether or not there are these fast algorithms for problems uh, like finding the largest uh, click in Facebook. Is there some fast algorithm, or is the best way to do it is essentially search for all the possibilities, which generally takes too long on in, in large examples like Facebook. That makes sense, because John and I were trying to, prior to talking to you, you know, we're trying to figure out, each of us telling each other, here's what I think PMP is, and here's what you think. And then we realized, well, why don't we just wait and talk to Lance? But, okay. uh, you know, that's definitely a different 
slightly different approach. Basically, it's you're saying, does the ability to solve this problem exist? Right. That's what P equals NP means. Okay. Now, uh, what are those two variables? If if we break them down, what is P and what is MP? Now, having understood the kind of the general idea, what do they break down to? What do they break down to? So that's uh, okay. So to be unfortunately, the names P and NP refer to sort of the very technical definitions where they were developed. So I, it's kind of a shame that we have these names that are uh, <laughs> not so easy to understand um, in an intuitive way. Roughly, P corresponds to the set of problems we can solve efficiently. So things where we can have a very quick algorithm, even if there might be a lot of possibilities. So examples of things we know that are in P are things like uh, when you use your GPS and you find the shortest route to get, you know, from Chicago to Atlanta, say, that is, that's an act, even though there's lots of possible, billions of possible routes one can take, we can still find the quickest one relatively quickly. Uh, so that's an example of something we know that's in P. It's a, it's a problem where we can actually find an efficient solution. We know efficient algorithms. We can find those things quickly. NP refers to the kinds of problems where, where it's, still, uh, it's, it's still trying to find uh, a solution, but um, we don't necessarily have a quick algorithm to do it. Although what, what NP means is we can recognize a good solution when we see it. So, for example, in the Facebook example, if I actually gave you 100 people and I asked you, are these 100 people all friends, friends with each other, you could check that relatively quickly. You could, just, you could check all the possibilities. There's roughly 10,000 possible things you need to check. It's not pretty quick on a computer. Um, so I could check a solution quickly, but finding the solution might be very much more difficult. And so NP refers to the sets of problems where we can check a solution quickly, and P represents the set of problems where we can actually find the solution quickly. And then P equals NP means, are all the problems where we can check a solution quickly, can we also find it quickly? Okay, that makes sense finally. And John, <laughs> I have to say, he made way more sense than your explanation. I was, I was trying to explain it by uh, how I looked at it, and your definition and your explanation was much more succinct and clear. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to say. Now, what I'm wondering is I like to think, because, you know, I'm not that smart, and we have people like yourself solving these problems. So I'd like to think if I asked you that question about Facebook, you'd be like, yeah, I can figure that algorithm out. What makes that one so much more difficult than what you just mentioned GPS can do, find the shortest route? I mean, it seems like very similar questions. Can't we just throw algorithms at them? Uh, you would think so. <laughs> Uh, but, um, I mean, the answer is, I don't know. I mean, I nobody knows. No, people have tried to find algorithms for problems like the clique problem and a slew of other related problems of this nature, but, uh, they, they're just too elusive. People have tried, and I think general people don't even believe that P and NP are the same, that we actually don't believe that there are efficient algorithms for, for finding, um, uh, say, clicks in Facebook. Okay, so I guess two questions out of that, I'm going to make a note. But the first one being, you know, do you believe that, you personally believe that there is a P equal NP algorithm out there? No, no. I, I, I tend to be, I would say, and I agree with the general consensus, is that uh, people have been trying to find algorithms for these problems for many decades. People have made very little progress. 
my guess is that no such algorithm exists. It would be just, it would, it would be, to my mind, surprising. I just believe that some things are just inherently difficult to solve. Does that just mean we aren't smart enough? I mean, or, or do, do you think it actually means it doesn't exist? I mean, I know that's a vague question, I'm not but... done. It's a fair question. Maybe, yeah. maybe you're right. Maybe we're just not being clever enough. But no, I would actually go stronger. I would say that, no, I don't think the algorithm exists. It's not just us. Can you just... talk about some of the, I guess, ramifications or what would happen if P did equal MP? I mean, what exactly would that change in terms of everything that we have now? I mean, I guess the short answer is it changes everything, but can you explain a little bit of, of that? It changes everything. That's... Uh... That's an easy way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, I devote a whole chapter to this question. I call it the, the beautiful world because it just, I mean, it's not just about finding cliques in Facebook, but it's, it just makes, it just a lot, almost everything, a lot of the challenges we see in science or anything today are, are algorithmic. And if P equals NP, most of these algorithmic challenges become very easy automatically. Right. So one thing I like to say is, uh, P equals NP ought to cure cancer, for example, because what do we need to do to create to cure cancer? I mean, to, to oversimplify quite a bit, but you need to create uh, proteins that will sort of prevent, you know, kill the cancer cells by leaving all the other cells, the normal cells, healthy. Um, so we want to create some sort of drug that might, you know, even designed for a specific individual that kills the cancer cells, doesn't kill anything else. To do that, we need to come up with some sort of uh, sequence of amino, uh, a DNA sequence that would create the right proteins and the right shapes in order to, you know, to attack the, the cancer cells and leave the rest of the cells alone. We don't know right now, we don't know very much about either what are the right shapes that we need, how do we go from, we don't even know how to go, uh, if I give you a DNA sequence, I don't even know how to, convert that to, uh, we don't know how that folds up necessarily into the right shape. But if P equals NP, we can kind of invert all these processes. We can go from a shape and we can figure out what the right sequence is and we can develop drugs based on individuals' DNA uh, that would effectively kill the cancer cells and should, you know, uh, let us uh, cure cancer and lots of other diseases. So that's, that's one example where I think people's NP would you know, have an incredibly dramatic effect. I mean, there's lots, I can keep going, there's lots of things. Uh, P equals NP would make learning very easy. So if you want to create a language translator, you just basically have to feed in a, a corpus of French and a corpus of English, and it would figure out the simplest way, that, uh, the simplest way to convert one from the other, and then you would basically be able to easily learn things like how to translate languages or how to do almost anything you'd need to learn. It almost sounds like we'd be living in the matrix. I was reading the chapter, The Beautiful World, right. and as I started reading it and going through some of the, the, I guess, scenarios in there, I was like, oh, this is really cool, this is really cool. And then I got to the, the part where you mentioned that music could be reproduced, like we could reproduce the Beatles and Elvis because we'd be able to have some type of algorithm to figure out how to reproduce their voice pattern, that type of thing, and be able to make any song we want. And then I started thinking, right. yeah, so I started thinking about that. And I was like, oh, maybe I don't want this because 
It takes like all of the good things about life and the mystery and the surprises and just makes everything solvable. And it's, I don't know, it seems like that would be a weird world to live in. I, you know, there's, there's definitely issues. Um, and I try to mention some of the negatives of P equals NP. Uh, one is zero, right? It takes away, if you can automate creativity, what is there left for, I mean, basically automate everything. Yeah, people so would just be sitting. Humans to do. We live in a world of Wally, where we're just all sitting around <laughs> being served by robots. And then there are also other practical issues. I think you get complete loss of privacy because you can learn everything. So you can learn, uh, you can learn anything about anyone. I mean, we're already worried about privacy now, but it would just get much worse if people then you could basically learn anything about anyone just by examining sort of the results of their actions. And then cryptography. I mean, that's just, that's one that people mention a lot is that. Uh, a lot of secret codes, almost pretty much almost all of the work on secret codes assumes that you know certain kinds of problems are difficult to solve. Because NP, those would be easy to solve. And so you'd be able to break most of the cryptographic uh, tools that are currently in use today. I guess one of the things I don't understand is this NP, it's not one algorithm, right? It's a is it a way to discover the easiest solution? Uh, I'm I'm struggling with this part. Uh I mean, if we had such an algorithm. So, so I mean, the, the idea is, you know, what if P equals NP? That would, yeah, in some sense, yes. It's basically, there basically could just be one algorithm that solves one of these sort of hard problems for NP like clique. And it turns out you could take that algorithm and then use it to solve any of these general, uh, these general search problems. So you can kind of piggyback on this algorithm. Oh, okay. And, um, I mean, it's not exactly the same algorithm, but basically the theory says is once you have this one algorithm, you can easily modify it to solve any of these other problems. I see. And, and the type of problem is a similar problem, right? I mean, like, it kind of relies on input in equals some output, whether it be if, you, if a person tends to do these actions, here will be the outcome, or if you want to get from point A to point B the quickest, here will be the outcome. It kind of requires a similar set of inputs. Would that Does that make sense? Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's you kind of describe a problem you want to solve and some sort of way that describes what the solution should look like, and then it would try to... It would be able to find that solution if it exists. I just wrote down problem solved efficiently equals like problem solved. Does that kind of describe it? A little bit. Okay. <laughs> That's a kind we're, way we're, of saying no. <laughs> we're, we're still trying. Yeah. I mean, neither of us are computer science or mathematics majors, so we're trying to, to figure this out on our own as we talk to you. I know. It's, 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 it's a little tricky, and I, you know, I, I try, to, try to not to get so much on the technicalities. Just think about, um, let me talk a little bit about, well, like, is, is this, I don't know if you know about this notion of Occam's razor, where, uh, so William of Occam was this Franciscan friar back in the 13th or 14th century, I remember offhand right now, and he had this idea that if you wanted to sort of describe some scientific principle, it's best to use the simplest possible description, because that's most likely to be correct, it's a very complicated description. So it's kind of a very nice idea. Basically, you want the okay. simplest principle that describes a phenomenon, and that's likely to be the correct one. Um, what P equals NP will let you do is actually find that simplest description. So in, in some sense, you could, and that, and as you could take any phenomena, you could feed it into this algorithm that exists, and that would come out a very simple description, a very simple procedure to then solve whatever problem sort of captures this phenomenon and would 
lets you figure out how to do things like basically anything you wanted to do. And this problem, this thing of P versus MP, stands to be one of the greatest kind of open problems in all of mathematics. And I know that you mentioned in computer science as well. And what I was talking to John about is, for those that don't know, I'm not a very computer savvy kind of guy. Could you explain the difference just from a basic level, computer science versus mathematics as a whole? No, I think they're really distinct fields with some overlap and, math, and both very broad. Mathematics is dealing, I mean, normally kind of intuitively think about it's dealing with numbers, but it's, it's, broader, it's much broader than that. It's really dealing with formalization, trying to say, we want to understand something. So we make some assumptions, some just very basic assumptions about, uh, about the world. And then what can we conclude from those assumptions? And mathematics is sort of a way to kind of study how do we get from the assumptions to the conclusions, what sort of techniques can we apply, hmm. uh, lots of very different, difficult, uh, you know, all from very technical ideas. Outside of the field, people think of, you know, mathematics is like, let's do um, addition and multiplication in computer sciences, let's do programming. Right. They're both much broader than that. Computer science to me is, it's very hard to describe, but one way I like to think of, of defining it is, you know, what happens when you do a Google search? So you type in some phrase in the Google, out pops up an answer in a tenth of a second or whatever. And what's going on? What's happening in that tenth of a second? And when you start thinking about everything that goes on from your messages being communicated, you know, it, it's, it's about communication, you know, being communicated from your computer, it's encrypted, it's communicated from your computer to some central server. This server is doing some sort of processing with a huge amount of data you know, in some server farm somewhere, you know, in the cloud somewhere, lots of tricks in computer science. It's, it's then analyzing this large graph to try to figure out what, what are the right results to send to you. It's parsing what you're asking. It's, there's, there's lots and lots of different things that are going on when you do a Google search from, you know, powerful algorithms to using networks to communicate between computers, these, the hardware, the computers you're running on, the, the systems that uh, the uh, computer systems on top of that hardware that are processing this information. And I think take on um, computer science and what computer science tries to do is how do we take all these pieces? Um, how do we make them each individually better? And then I mean, how do we harness them all together to uh, create a much more powerful computing environment? And that's what I think computer science tries to analyze from the, you know, from the very applied, you know, where you're actually building chips to the very theoretical. Where they intersect, um, and that's sort of my research area, theoretical computer science, where computer science and mathematics intersect is where we actually try to understand computation from a mathematical point of view, where we try to formalize the notions of what is a computer. We try to answer those kinds of questions. Like, what is a computer? What does it mean for a computer to compute something? What does it mean for a computer to compute something efficiently? And, and there what we do is we take these questions, we formulate them very mathematically, and then we try to put attack these questions from a very mathematical, formal direction. And the P equals MP questions kind of fits in that intersection. That's well above, well above our pay grade, but I think that's a great description of the difference between the two. In theoretical computer science, I mean, do you guys look into or, I guess, theorize on whether quantum computing will ever happen? Is that something that you're involved in or interested in doing research wait, on? That wait, thing? what is quantum computing? Uh, we're going to need more about this, Lance. Can you give us the uh, both his question and what it is in general? <laughs> 
So, I mean, it, uh, I've done a little bit of work in quantum computing. It's not my specialty. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know some about it. And yes, theoretical computer scientists have put a, uh, I've done, you know, work on the computing, the algorithmic end of quantum computing. And then, of course, the physicists are really trying to build these machines. Right. Uh, what is quantum computing? And that's going to be very hard to describe. <laughs> the point is, is that quantum, quantum mechanics acts in ways that, that are a bit different than kind of the intuitive notions of how you, 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 things react in a certain kind of different way. And in some ways they're helpful, in some ways they're actually more difficult. And, but it turns out that you could ask questions, well, what if I build computational devices based on quantum mechanics? Not going into too much detail about what quantum mechanics is. <laughs> but people have asked this. This is actually, I think, uh, it's, it's often attributed to Richard Feynman, who is this famous physicist. Um, and he realized that it was very hard to compute things about, you know, do simulations about what, what's happening in a, in a quantum world. And then he turned that around and said, well, if it's hard to compute what quantum machines do, maybe, or what quantum mechanics do, maybe if we use quantum mechanics, we can actually, as a basis for computers, maybe we could do things computers couldn't do. And it turned out that uh, there are some problems where uh, quantum computers can seemingly do things far faster than traditional computers. And uh, uh, the best example of this is was a result, is, a, is a, something known as uh, Shor's algorithm, uh, which was proven by Peter Shor, who's currently at MIT. Um, and what he did was he showed an algorithm for factoring large numbers uh, using a quantum computer, if it exists. I mean, these things don't exist yet, but it exists. So he proved something working without it actually existing? Right, because what oh, it's crazy. Did, it's actually not so crazy. Basically, <laughs> what he did was we came up with. It's actually not that hard to come up with. What is the computational model of a quantum computer? Uh, you know, sort of a mathematical model of a quantum computer. And then, you know, once you have that model, you can then ask questions about what can you do in that model. Um, now, the fact that we haven't actually been able to build physically build this model yet, you know, prevents us from actually running these algorithms. Although people have done it on a very small scale, you know, factor the number fifteen, for example. But you know, to do it on a large scale is still well beyond what we know how to do physically. Um, but still, we can still develop the algorithms. So and so, we're ready for when these when these machines are actually built, then we can actually run them. So, you know, listening to you describe this stuff, and honestly, you're you're doing probably a better job than you're giving yourself credit for, because it's starting to make sense. And, you know, I read your bio, and you got your PhD in applied mathematics at MIT, and you're the professor and chair of School of Computer Science at Georgia Institute of Technology, and all this stuff. So you are the guy that I am envisioning when like all this crazy stuff is happening in my computer. Okay. I'm just letting you know, like when I type in a Google search, Lance is the reason why something pops up. So from, uh, I'm a theoretician. So <laughs> very little of what I've done is actually affected real world computing. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, just take it for what it is. So then what okay. I want, what I want to ask you is what are you most excited about? What things that might happen in the in the near future or are happening right now really kind of uh, get you excited about the future and technology and computers and and all that stuff oh there's the things that get me excited and then there's the things that scare me <laughs> okay both yeah <laughs> uh what well, gets me excited about the future i mean it's it computer science always amazes me it's constantly changing and we're constantly coming up i mean the fact that computers just got so much faster over the years 
has really enabled us to do things with computers now that we would never have been able to do before. So, and you can see this in, you know, for example, what Google can do or what we can do in things like facial recognition or voice recognition or things like this, you know, just were made possible both by faster computers and better algorithms. Um, Self-driving cars as we're seeing today. It's amazing to kind of see the kinds of applications that we can do. Um, it's also amazing to see, you know, how small devices have gotten and how I have you know, something in my pocket that can answer any question I throw at it. But there's a lot of future challenges. Uh, computers sort of stopped getting faster around 2005. Um, the only way we can make computers faster now is to kind of put lots of little computers, lots of little processors on a chip, the thing called multi-core computing, or put a lot of things out in the cloud. So we have to have a lot of things working together. And that causes huge challenges uh, as far as power goes and as far as communication goes and, and making sure these things work well without you know, crashing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a very exciting field to make all these things work well and to actually still increase the amount of power that we can create with computers. So there's, there's a lot of exciting work uh, to do in computer science that way. The, I mean, the other excitement is just, you know, the, the massive amount of data that we generate and be able to learn from that data and what we can understand about, about the world, about science, about people, you know, the things that you can really understand given the huge amounts of, of data that we produce on things like Facebook. Google searches or whatever you do. Uh, what scares me, because you know, I think it's worth talking about that too, is our computers are getting more and more complex. It's getting a bigger challenge, uh, not only to get things working correctly, but to protect our computers from hackers. Uh, cybersecurity has become a, a very difficult issue. People are finding all sorts of ways to attack machines and, and to try to keep uh, systems running in a world where, you know, people are now talking about cyber warfare. Um, also, I think privacy. Uh, I think we have issues of privacy that we didn't have before. It used to be very hard to pick up information about people. I mean, it, we're not, it's not like the information now is more public than it was before, it's just, but there's so much more of it and it's so much easier to access. And then so you can really, I mean, it gets scary sometimes when you use Google and it's telling you things about yourself you just wouldn't have imagined it could have figured out. And so uh, you have to be careful that, you know, this information, uh, people don't want too much of the life being public that, uh, that, that there's some way to retain that privacy, uh, you know, in, in a world where we're all this, where, where you actually have all this data that's out there. I think at a certain point, maybe generation younger than me or a few in the future, it's just privacy is going to be a foreign concept. I mean, I really do think that it's just people are starting to literally care less about it. That's certainly true. I <laughs> see that in my younger generation. I see that with my kids. Yeah. Let's put up anything on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I've been reading all this stuff and there's news things about how teachers are now at a young age, you know, they're teaching five-year-olds and, and six, seven-year-olds what is okay to put out there publicly. Because things that we didn't have to teach, say, you know, what I didn't have to learn when I was five, they have to learn this or else they can get in, you know, serious trouble that they don't understand the repercussions at such a young age. Right. And I would probably also be more tolerant. Sure. Uh, in the future, too. I mean, you notice this, you know, for example, 
Uh, no, Obama wrote a book where he described his drug use. Exactly. It's you know work against him, probably because he was open about it. You know where you know killed nominees not that long ago. Yeah, that's actually an example I use. You know, I talk to my friends, and you know, Facebook came out when we were twenty-ish or whatever, and people will say, "Oh, you could never achieve high power, you know, a high position of authority because we have so much blackmail on you." And I say, by then, by that point, 10, 15, 20 years, nobody's going to care if it's mild, you know, if you're smoking a joint or drinking or whatever it is. I just don't think people are going to care. Yeah, I think even in, like, uh, um, often in case, it seems to be the cover-up is worse than the crime itself. Right. Right, if you lie about it or you, you try to hide what you've actually done. And that, that gets you in more trouble than the actual act. Sure. Well, I had one last question for you that normally I would put at the beginning of an episode, but I, I wanted to dive into the PNP thing. Have you always enjoyed math, computers? Do you remember always having a fascination and, and perhaps when that began? Do you feel that your brain might operate differently from the ma the majority of people that can't even understand this stuff? I mean, certainly I think when I was in junior high and high school, I certainly got a little more interested in mathematics and that kind of blossomed. As I got older, uh, am I not? Am I? You know, I also got. I was lucky to get involved with computers that are, you know, at, uh, at least back in my day, a relatively young age. You know, I got my little TRS-80 computer when I was 15, so I was able to play around with it, you know, before college. And I think I just got very lucky stumbling into a research area that um, you wouldn't normally think of. I mean, normally you don't you don't hear about problems like. And, and theoretical computer science, you know, before you get some pretty late in the college. Uh, but I had a good, I took a good class with a good teacher, got me very excited about it. And then I found that I just love this area. So I, I really got lucky in stumbling on a research area, which I find very interesting and exciting and that I'm reasonably good at. Uh, so, you know, it's just a perfect fit for me. And I think that's, and um, a lot of it is just luck, just, you know, just ending up where I sh should be. Uh, <laughs> Does my mind think differently? I mean, I, I do kind of view the world, maybe it's just my background, but I kind of view the world, you know, in a computational process way. In some sense, sometimes I think I do think differently. I think I think of the world as one big computer. Uh, basically everything, almost everything we do is, is a matter of process, is a matter of things that are connecting. And I think you know, having that view that I take kind of feeds into my research. Yeah, no, that, I, that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, John's nodding, I think. Even between him and I, he sees things a little bit more that way. And and so I, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad that you do this kind of stuff because a lot of what we've discovered and we believe in is the people that really succeed, call it luck or experimenting or whatever, they work in the field in which they're meant to and succeed because of the passion as well as their unique thought process. So, you know, hopefully you can solve this PNP problem, or maybe not. I don't know. Now I'm scared. I don't know which way I want it to go. <laughs> I certainly don't believe I'm going to be the one to solve it. Right. In fact, at this point, I don't believe I'm going to see a solution in my lifetime. But right. We can hope. Well, and again, the golden ticket is fantastic. It, although the discussion can t sometimes tend to get deep, the way you cover it, there's different topics, as we briefly mentioned, you know, and, and theorizing about these things. So we definitely recommend it. To people who are just curious and interested not only in math or computer science, but in problem solving, where else can our listeners go? Do you write often or do you discuss these theories often or are you kind of more 
in the lab or in the classroom? I mean, I do have a blog, you know, which covers a whole slew of different topics. Sometimes uh, mathematics, you know, related to PNP. Sometimes just about academics in general. So I, I still I co-write that with a professor at the University of Maryland, Phil Kasarch. Um, we both try to post weekly. Um, and I think that's a lot of what got me writing in the first place to make me think about about the book. Oh, great! And, uh, and um, where what is that site so that people can find it from you? Called computational complexity. Probably the easiest way to do it and find it is just Google my name, Fortnow blog. And then there's uh, I mean, there's a lot out there on PNNP. Just you know, go out there and I mean, there's a lot of courses online if people want more detailed things. Shortage of information out there. <laughs> No, I know, and I'm I'm glad that we kind of discovered it. I'm glad you you bring it to the forefront a little bit in your book, um, which caught my eye in in a subject that I might not necessarily have have looked for, and that's kind of what we try and do on the show. So, again, um, I know we we kept you a little longer than we had anticipated, but it's a very interesting subject, and I really just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, and, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And best of luck with all this in the future. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Lance. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. And that just happened. Are you guys all PNP experts now? I thought you were going to say like all PNP'd out. Every time, though, I hear PNP, it reminds me of PMP yeah. from when I was doing consulting. And I'm like, oh, PMP, no. What does that even mean? project management professional it was this certification process it was yeah it was pretty awful but pnp is actually interesting and i think is going to be way more important to the world than pmp that's a good point you know this episode really made me realize that i am a dummy no that my brain is expanding because of this show it's doing what we set out to do from now on, I'll know that this theory exists, and I never would have known that. If they do actually figure out P equals MP, or they're able to prove that, how it's going to just change everything with cryptography and just, I mean, everything. Cancer. The world will be flipped on its end. Baseball. Nobody will know that we're humans anymore. We'll just be like little bleeps in the matrix, and, and then who if knows? If you guys are ever driving in the car... And you're listening to us. So you're walking your dog and you're listening to us. And you're like, hey, I want to let them know I really liked X. Or I really hate it when they do Y. Or I'd like to hear from Z. Let us know. Smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go to smartpeoplepodcast.com and there's a contact us. Dig around. Check out people we've had on. We're, uh, you know, we're proud of the resume we've built of individuals. Let us know what you think. Yeah, and we want to keep growing that resume, so if you can give us suggestions for great guests to have on the show, we'd really appreciate that. And you know what? It's an added bonus when you actually know them, and we can set up the interview even easier. Mm, True. All right, thanks for joining us. Tune in next week, Smart People Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Much love. P and P.